Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hi, this is Harry Dodge, and I'm going to read you a few excerpts from my new book, My Meteorite, or Without the Random, There Can Be No New Thing. When the universe, our 14 billion year old universe, was just a baby, say for the first tens of thousands of years after the Big Bang, everything was just a field of plasma, an almost homogeneous field of matter, except for the lightest scattering of little tiny quantum density fluctuations, or slightly thicker plasma, called random seeds. Cosmic dust grains started to find each other, to stick. And though they were first moved by a type of Brownian motion, the globs, after they had reached a certain size, began to attract each other via their mutual gravity. In this manner, legions of planetesimals formed. Growth compounded. Density created more gravity, which produced more density, and eventually... Each random seed grew into a galaxy. Is love a kind of gravity? Affinity. And is the space between people and between objects a sort of meat or matter? Maurice Merleau-Ponty coined the term flesh of the world, which he characterized as a sort of incarnate principle, this charged space a viscous tension between organisms in relation, space we commonly think of as empty. I made a drawing recently in which a caveman is saying, love is very diffuse meat. June 2017. It's 35 degrees hotter than the last time we were here, 108 Fahrenheit now, at 7 a.m. We're already gulping water from these tubes clipped to shoulder straps, tubes that are connected to plastic bags of water we carry in our packs. I'd take a picture of Lenny at the trailhead. Handsome baby, forged hotly in the deep violet-blue brilliance of morning. Just like last time, but he's so much bigger. We set out. We set out, losing altitude quickly across Chaparral, in full sun. The air is transparent magma. Sweating and drinking and sometimes peeing all at the same time were like clouds. 
In a short burst, we arrive at the bottom of Laverkin Canyon, a few miles beyond which juts one of the largest stone arches in the world. It's an arch that you can't quite reach, too much brush, and it's up on an invisible cliff, so no matter how long you stand there, near but not too near, it always seems just medium-sized for a stone arch. There's a sort of fugitive greatness which is also softly sad, and everybody knows that a quiet sadness is all the more potent for being illegible. You can't beat it back. Lenny peels off his shoes, socks, shirt, and launches into a diveable swimming hole, one of dozens formed here where the descent meets the creek. I drag our packs to the only shade at noon, under a small Palo Verde tree about 15 meters from the cacophony of limestone pools which not only perforate the smooth yellow desert rock, but are also perforated themselves, fractal, like Swiss cheese, laced around edges with smaller bowls and then frills of entry-level basins giving way to peepholes, a sort of fringe of sun eyeballs. There are cactus, cottonwood, sage, yucca, and a bunch of small flowered columbines. We hold hands and jump into the deepest part of the bowl, under a waterfall, and then splash west, off trail, following the waterway in search of finer and finer swimming possibilities. The water's clear, knee-deep in most spots, powerful. Over months, I've been entertaining a sense of enmeshment with some Byzantine but obvious expression of cosmic order, a flow of rightness evinced by a string of ever more frequent simultaneities, coincidences, etc., the feeling teases, however, thunderously present and then just as thuddingly gone, a disappearing act that unfortunately electrifies in me a variety pack of smoldering griefs. Though I expect a swell of such instances to follow directly as Lenny and I undertake this bout of man-nature fusion, on day one I'm disappointed. Although I am, it must be noted, suffused with a keen sense of joy at spending time with my son, a delight which after the breathtaking intimacy of water touching the skin of my whole body at once, makes up the bulk of the experience. We leave the creek, and therefore all aquatic comforts the morning of the second day, and launch a desperate, nearly incandescent pilgrimage toward our water cache. We had left three gallons the evening before the hike at some remote trailhead. Having dispatched seven miles by 11 a.m., we're already fatigued when hard ground under our feet shifts to deep sand, making each step collapsible, foundering, Sisyphean. I feel guilty, and Lenny stops talking, all of his energy aimed squarely at lifting his leg and placing it again. At this point, the land rises in front of us, tilts into a sand wall, and we walk uphill, falling back in uncongealed earth for hours. The temperature, the temperature tops 110 Fahrenheit. Lenny is a strong walker, but in this matrix of pressures, we both falter. We pause in every plaid of shade, breathing heavy, feeling lost on the big earth, savory buns in the oven of naive mammalian presentiment. I watch Lenny for heat stroke until he orders me to stop staring. We eventually crest onto a plateau, hopeful regarding our proximity to the location of our midday sup. We're out of water in all canteens, and also, we keep our fucking chins up. We now follow the serpentine edge of a rock wall on the left, and so, in the reveal of each bend, our Surprised repeatedly be, are surprised repeatedly by incongruous stunts of flora, a cactus bloom, or a delegation of identical smoke trees surrounding a small black pond. But nothing prepares us for what comes next. Suddenly, 
We find ourselves at the edge of a colossal field of deep, dense, light green, frilly grasses. As far as we can see, a kind of enchanted emerald expanse. The grasses look like they've been drinking for days, fern-like, lush, and so close together that the uppermost surface of them together is planar, undulating, and iridescent. They speak together in language made from light, refracting comfort. Think Wizard of Oz here, the poppy field, ensorcelled. There's a narrow linear crease, a crack open through the middle of the stand, just the thickness of one human body. We're being called. Odd futures await. We both say wow a bunch of times. And then I tell him, it's actually style of heaven. And then I tell him, it's actually a style of heaven. It's a version of heaven. Maybe you can tell that. He laughs and protests. Except for it's hot. I say, no, wrong. Heaven is actually hot. Lenny says, oh, and looks off hard at the field. The Christians never tell you that. They tell you hell is hot, but they don't tell you heaven's fucking hot too. It's just that one's beautiful and the other's not. That's the only fucking difference. Hell is fucking ugly. No other difference. We wade into the water, take some pictures. In five more minutes, we duck into and out of a chalk of Huckleberry to arrive at the trailhead, which is really just a dusty parking lot attended by a spacious, shiny, fresh, cinder block restroom. There's a large awning through... There's a large awning, though, which shades the doors and a big, clean, concrete pad. We find our water stash and drink gleefully. Now we cook lunch, lie down, and rest for over three hours on this coolish slab as the sun pitches past eventually chasing us back onto the land where we navigate slick rock as it disgorges heat upward and a mishmash of personal exhaustion commingles with the common ground of our now puckered survival urges. This until twilight warms. We require to sleep off trail and so meander into the oaks, shuffling through short grass strewn in ancient pepper-colored boulders, ankle breakers. We find a clearing and Lenny disintegrates into a pile of flesh and gets lost in his novel quiet. I roam through the orange light, shadows lengthening, tearing merrily around, almost skipping until I come upon an almost perfect spot to make camp, in front of a mound marked by one small hole. This area is cozy but broad-feeling and velveted by a sedimentation of leaves apparently fallen and untouched for decades. I crunch back to Lenny, who's limp, but assents to this minorest of resettlements. He refuses to carry anything, though, and so I haul his and my belongings about a quarter mile to the new site, where I forthwith empty both packs onto the ground, scattering our goods in a seven-foot swath. I don't know who lives in there, I observe, and then urge Lenny to sit back on the mound next to this hole, which I submit is maybe a squirrel hole or the house of a mouse. He takes a seat and reads, not there, but against a tree near the jumble of our gear. Dad-like, I slowly perambulate the area in a diameter of 20 feet or so, scanning for perfectly level ground on which to pitch the tent, but find no such zone. I skitter down a little hillock and check under a massive tree about 30 feet to the south, discover a width of land that is acceptably flat. Lenny, come help me clear the little rocks and twigs so we can sleep. We work for a couple of minutes, tossing rocks and twigs aside, and then we're making for our equipment when Lenny spots the rattler, about 20 feet young, sliding right through the middle of our gear. It's brown, smooth, fast-moving, scary as hell. It glissades over the shirt I've just removed. It, glis it glissades over the shirt I've just removed and races perpendicular to us downhill out of the sight, 
which you might imagine causes us to move in spurts, circle away and up, back toward our gear. We can't breathe. How is it moving so fast? Lenny says, and it disappears behind a tree before re-emerging in a hard tack toward where we have just been milling about, removing rocks for sleep. It stops there and turns around, eyeing us. Basically, the message is, that area and this area too, this is where I'm going to be cruising around tonight, so you'd better move on. I tell Lenny to watch the snake, which is now still, but don't let it get close, and I've never moved so fast, smashing our crap into two backpacks. Put this on, let's go. I hand Lenny a big, misshapen bag, and we are walking again. I lead us tramping into a kind of aphotic gloom. I want to call everything off, head to the car, sleep there. I'm almost unable to live through it, this feeling of misjudgment. My vision is strobing orange. I'm angry, can't slow down to think. Residual heat in the form of night air has a cloying ardor that is also disturbing. We are moving under great conifers, which, in blocking light from the moon, render great, render great swaths of black shadow. Neither of us is able to see our own feet. Now the alarm is inundating, a, a drowning feeling. Lenny's behind me, I hear him, he's a strong boy. I decompensate, descend into flat panic. What the fuck am I doing bringing my son out here? Why did I tell him to sit next to the hole? Why did I choose, of all places, to set up camp on a mound of snakes? I've never felt like this in the wild before. I'm gifted with a dandy internal thermostat that, present moment accepted, operates emotionally toward moderating pessimism and physically to countering intense desert heat. We're high up, hustling through tufts of tall dry grass, a loud crackling, the sound of thirsty flora underfoot, a chewing done by footsteps, rings out into the otherwise silent night. Is it loud enough? I tell Lenny to sing so the snakes know we're coming. He starts quietly. I've been working on the railroad, a tune which sung repeatedly constituted the aggregate of my nighttime lullaby alms during the last few years I had undertaken such things with him. I don't know where to go, for sleep or to rest, because there are rattlesnakes everywhere. I'm not able to keep Lenny safe. This makes me angry again, and acutely sorrowful for reasons beyond my grasp. The roar of our footsteps intensifies, and I can't hear Lenny singing at all now. Go back to the car, jig is up! Something's yowling at me from inside, some abstruse kitten, but we've already walked beyond our limit. Seventeen miles in screeching heat, and now it's dark. We have no business being awake after so taxing a day, and yet here we are. All at once, I find sentences by which I'm able to build thoughts, my own thoughts. We cannot slough our injurability. This entire darkened Sibylline bluff is snake habitat. We have to infer and then depend upon not only the prevailing goodwill of these creatures, but, perhaps more relevant, their well-documented reclusiveness. Not one of us will ever be finally, consummately invulnerable. And what point to seeking it? Especially now, past dusk on this promontory, under an epic sky. The remainder of the psychic contest is a kind of ratiocination, maths, a balance, or even plain denial. We have to bend now so as not to break. I tell Lenny this. He nods, looks into my eyes. And I also tell him everything is going to be fine. And honestly, I'm not sure he was worried at all. 
Before long, we find a big flat area, no mountains, no holes, and set up camp. Lenny asks if tonight I could finally teach him how to use the little camp stove. My dad's been dead three weeks. Toward the end of his life, Kurt Gottel told a friend that he had always anticipated an epiphany that would change his understanding of the world fundamentally, something that would cleave his life in two, produce new eyes, a fresh set of questions, but that the epiphany never came. Apparently for decades he had existed on some durable psychic flexure. I wonder, had he been patient, chafing? One imagines, especially for someone as smart as Kurt Gottel, this expectation might be intellectually sustaining, a kind of effervescing presentiment, this wave that never breaks, count me in. But not in Gottel's case, or inadequately so. He eventually began suffering bouts of mental instability and developed an obsessive fear of being poisoned. Unwilling to eat, froth and marrow affected by the solar tides of epiphanic optimism notwithstanding, he thus starved himself. The death certificate reports that he died of malnutrition and inanition caused by a personality disturbance. I've always carried my strange brain with me, like a giant bundle of steak or a great little rubbery newborn. It's heavy like that, in my arms, which are tired. I have a blanket around it, or brown paper usually, I guess, tied with string, and though my brain thinks too many things at once, a condition I find painful, Sometimes I think of it like a long thresher with hundreds of arms, mowing impossibly wide swaths. I've always been fond of its compulsive lateral leaping, as well as its strange insistence upon gleaning relational structure and swiftly generating webs of mental images, like analogy galaxies, full with comparable items or situations. If I could have just one t-shirt to wear on a desert island... If I could have just one t-shirt to wear on a desert island, it would say false or veritable analogy. For an artist, there's a good chance the nuance is going to be inconsequential, or maybe I should say providential. My hunches animate me. Conjectures, they're called in mathematics. Over time, postulations effervesce, are borne out or disproved. I told Maggie today that I would like to live 10,000 years. I told Maggie today that I would like to live 10,000 years. All right, that's it for my excerpts. I hope you enjoyed them. And thank you to Skylight for uh, inviting me to do a podcast. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.